There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain. But we podcaster have the rings of power to talk about. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today, we are discussing the third episode of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, now streaming. I guess. <laughs> Our spoiler warning for this episode is we will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far of The Rings of Power, and we will also be discussing all published Lord of the Rings materials as they may come up, be they Peter Jackson's films or Tolkien's other entries in the Legendarium. However, we will save speculation based on prior knowledge for the end in a special spoiler section with a musical break, so if you want to remain curious about what may come next, you can bounce then. I also want to use this uh, moment up top to remind you that our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com, and we would love to hear you and your thoughts about the show as we go on. Um, You know, we can try to get some of you involved in our conversation. All right, so I guess we can start this episode just by (laughs) asking, do we like this better than the previous episode, Um, or the previous set of episodes, rather, since we got two last time out? Um, For me, I will say I did. Um, I think this fundamentally worked as a better piece of television for me, which maybe just because it was one hour instead of two, it just felt like an hour of television. (laughs) Um, But they kind of limited the scope of this episode. There was no Bronwyn, Elrond, Dwarves, Mm. Celebrimbor. Um, So it was a little more focused on three to four specific storylines and sets of characters. Um, So I was able to get more of a sense of them. And there was actual uh, political context to what some of the characters were doing. So they weren't just looking nebulously to the horizon or rebelling (laughs) against a system that isn't really there yet. Um, So I felt a little more sure of what uh, the characters' motivations were, at least in the moment, if not like their broader agendas. And then lastly, I thought the episode finally actually looked really good (laughs) from start to end for the most part. Um, The look of Numenor, I think, was excellent uh, Mm. overall. Uh, maybe not the most daring designs, but what they put on screen actually looked good, and they used some good camera movements with it. Um, and then I love the orcs uh, that we got later. Um, actually, not as great as I had hoped. I think you can see a little more rubbery in the costume than I was hoping for, um, but I still think the general designs of them are really solid, and it is at least tangible assets, which I can applaud uh, for that part. But with that said, what about you, Emily? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so I... I... So I'm kind of having this weird thing where I'm sitting here going, do I think that this was, like, I I really did not enjoy this episode. I had no fun during it. But do I think it was worse than the preceding two episodes? Uh, And I think I'm kind of like, no, but also yes. Um, And I think one of the things for me is, like, um, because this episode was slimmed down drastically from the previous two episodes, um, it actually ended up missing some of the things that I did quite like about the, or not like, but I was kind of more interested in from the previous two episodes, which is... To be honest, namely Elrond and boring as shit Gilgalad uh, and whatever weird <laughs> nonsense they had going on there. I found that slightly more compelling uh, than certainly than the Arendir plotline, the the Mordor stuff. Uh, I, I When the episode started and he's like crawling through the shit or being lifted through the shit, I, I was like sitting there going, how did he get here again? Where where was he? Who is he? What is this guy? And it took me kind of a minute to be like, uh, yeah. He was doing this before, and this is how he ended up here, because I don't find his bit compelling at all. Um, So I think this so far is, like, 
episode one was by far the worst for me. Um, I think this episode ranks as second, and then episode two uh, is probably my favorite so far. Uh, so I think I think that's where I'm at with this. <laughs> I was about to say, uh, with regards to the Arondir plot, um, listening back to our first episode, uh, we both basically said, oh, he went into the tunnel, and neither of us could remember what actually happened to him <laughs> or where he came out. Um, thankfully, the previously on showed that he was just grabbed by hands and sucked into the darkness. We've all um, been there. Yeah, so, you know, relatable. <laughs> um, and I think the other uh, thought we can kind of discuss up top is the fact that this is clearly trying to be more true to the lore of the Peter Jackson films than, say, Tolkien's text. And yeah. Emily will expound on that in a minute. Um, what I kind of mean by that is Peter Jackson made this adaptation, and in making his adaptation, he made certain choices about who some of these characters are, uh, what some of these moments in history look like. Like, say, Elrond and Isildur in the Cracks of Doom and, you know, Isildur refusing to throw the ring. And I think it's very clear in this early episode that they are likely building and playing on our expectations of that part of the lore, even if that's already one step removed from Tolkien's text or anything he had written about it. Yep. Um, so so I've kind of been going back and forth. I, I feel like I'm just starting all my sentence with, uh, sentences about the show with this. But like um, this show uh, doesn't feel right to me. Uh, like it is definitely it's certainly a show. Uh, I can give it I can give it the credit of saying it's definitely a TV show. And um, it's not a Lord of the Rings show for me. Um, and I think one of the things that I find really frustrating um, and there's kind of a two pronged element to this. One is the like very conciliatory approach that um, I actually think like was best um and kind of summarized by a friend of the show, uh, uh, Maddie Hugh, uh, who's got uh, Pod Wraiths, which is a great podcast about Deep Space Nine. I don't even watch Deep Space Nine, really. I kind of try and watch it, but I listen to their podcast religiously because it's it's that fun to listen to them. Uh, so check that out. But but Matt said in our uh, patrons only Discord, he said this. Um for me, who's maybe like a half step more into the lore than Manu, but nowhere near, um, or another person who's in the uh, patron, uh, patrons only Discord, this is reminding me of Star Trek uh, 2009 versus the original series or Prime Timeline or whatever. The JJ track is more successful, but this feels like all universe Tolkien and that some of the parts and names and stuff are there, but it doesn't feel like Tolkien. And that I think is that is I think the approach. Um, and I should also actually caveat this by saying that like I also grew up watching the the original series of Star Trek. Um, but my first kind of big Star Trek love was the J.J. Abrams film, the two thousand nine film, and and that mm -hmm. totally blew my mind, and I loved it. So that I, I agree with Matt's assessment on that one hundred percent. But I also want to caveat that by saying that doesn't necessarily mean I am like predisposed towards hating it just because it's like the J.J. timeline or whatever. That totally makes sense. So that would also kind of explain. Or perhaps my own history was, say, Marvel Comics and the several iterations of them. Um, and I'm not just talking about the films, like the various Spider-Man, like the three different Spider-Mans we've seen so far. But like I've seen those characters who've existed for 60 years in canon just iterate upon itself so many times just in the comics. Um, that's how you get multiverse stories and alternate and bizarro Superman and stuff like that. Um, so I am just very used to the idea of an adaptation being pretty divorced from the core concept. Yeah. Um, the first Batman movie, the Tim Burton one, famously Tim Burton doesn't read Batman comics. He's <laughs> like, this is what these characters look like. I'm just going to make a gothic as fuck Gotham and just kind of go from there and do something in between campy and horror. Um, and it worked, you know, and, but I mean, I don't think anyone would say that's like the best adaptation of Batman insofar as there is one, but you know, 
Um, I think I'm just a little more forgiving of that, whereas um, I can see other people not being, because Tolkien's work is not Marvel Comics. It is not 80 years of shit with, you know, over 200 different creatives each putting their hands to it. Yeah. Um, it is a kind of very specific vision. Um, and we're getting like a bastardized version of a bastardized version in the first place here. Yeah. And I think for me, the kind of thing is like, um, uh, like Tolkien's work is not a genre unto itself and the way that like comic books are. And um, I think like the, the comparison would have to be like the very best comic book ever written um, is uh, like, I don't know what that is because I don't, I don't read comics, but like the very best comic book ever written and produced is, is akin to Tolkien's legendarium. And that is mm-hmm. the output of one specific person. Well, maybe not one specific person, but a team of people or a group of people, one clear pathway forward and into the creative universe of it. Um, and, um, and it has internal rules and kind of regulations, sorry to be a bit of like a Tolkien bureaucrat, but like it has set down very clearly what it wants to do. Um, and so you can't really just like take cues from it and say that it's an adaptation in the way that like you could do a movie that is loosely inspired by comic books, um, and take cues from comic books writ large and be fine. You couldn't adapt like, I don't know, the first ever Superman comics um, and say that it's a direct adaptation when really you're only doing gestures from the comic book uh, genre. Uh, and, and that to me is kind of the thing. And and it also like, um, you know, there may be a lot of shitty comic books out there. I, I don't know. I, I actually do know. because oh, there are more read- <laughs> shitty comic books than there are good comic books. Yeah. Well, yeah, like and there are definitely more shitty novels than there are good novels. Um, but but The Lord of the Rings is, is the best of the best. Uh, and like I say, this is both like in this sort of a aggressively and emotionally invested sense of like a fan who loves loves Lord of the Rings like it is one of the best novels of all time but also in the slightly more like clinical sense like the Lord of the Rings is absolutely at the height of the western canon it is a it is a masterpiece unto itself uh and um along with the 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 sort of triumph of of um literature that it is it, it has a certain status as a, as a piece of art right um and it, it's not just like a piece of kind of rote culture that's out there to like do 30 seconds of quick emotional uh kind of of uh, invention within a person and then be chucked away on the like list of dime store paperbacks. It, it, it is something above. Um, and because it's something above to me, um, there, there's a quote I want to read from Patrick McKay, or McKay, I can't remember how the Americans say it, uh, from the press um, tour for, for The Rings of Power that I think has kind of stuck with me and, and is kind of just going to niggle at me the whole way through this show. But, but um, Patrick McKay said this, um, I just want to sort of quibble with the vaguely connected assertion. We don't feel that way. We hear referring to Mackay and the other fellow who wrote this. Um, we feel like deep roots of this show are in the books and in Tolkien. And if we didn't feel that way, we'd all be terrified to sit up here. We feel that this story isn't ours. It's a story we're stewarding that was here before us and was waiting in those books to be on Earth. We don't feel vaguely connected. We feel deeply, deeply connected to those folks and that work every day to even be closer connected. That's really how we think about it. And this this to me is my problem with this show, right? Because uh, maybe maybe he's a nice guy. I don't know. I think he's a liar. Um, I think he's a liar. Uh, and I think that is that quote there is a lie. Um, because I think this show, this episode in particular, uh, and all of the things we're about to talk about with Numenor show that this is not a, a TV series that is pulling from the books. Uh, at all. Uh, it's pulling from the movies. There is nothing inherently wrong with that. Like, I, I want to put that out there. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. What's wrong is saying that it's pulling from the books when it's not. Uh, and, and and I wish they had just said, you know, 
for copyright reasons, we're definitely basing this off of the books, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We've all, we all love those movies, but they went full court press with the book stuff and it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. And this episode in particular was really fascinating to me because there are about 10 different things that I pointed out where, uh, they are factual inaccuracies so far as the book is concerned, and also factual inaccuracies that uh, directly contravene things that are written explicitly in the in the appendices or in the Lord of the Rings itself. But they are things that are true in Peter Jackson's films. And this was this thing where I was like, if they had just said they were going to be really influenced by the films, then I wouldn't have been so upset about this but the fact that they went over and over and over again to say things like this like we are deeply connected to the books and to Tolkien when they're not that is this thing that has kind of just set me in this bad mood for this whole show because I'm like don't lie to me about this I'm not expecting everybody and I don't think less of people who haven't read the Lord of the Rings and I don't think less of people who haven't read the Silmarillion I do think less of people who fucking lie about it Uh, and that's kind of where I'm coming to this episode (laughs) in particular from (laughs) <laughs> On that note, let's actually talk about it. Um, and we should just start where the episode starts. I think we'll follow the Galadriel and Halbrand plotline all the way through to start. Um, and this is our introduction to Numenor. Um, we get some very explicit dialogue from Galadriel. Like, this is the only one place we could possibly be sailing at this point in the world. <laughs> um, what did you feel about the establishing shots of Numenor? Um, kind of sailing in through a little canyon. You see some stone faces in there and then it reveals the city writ large um i think it's king's landing from game of thrones um i think they did a beautiful homage to king's landing uh it's not my numenor <laughs> hashtag not my numenor um but it is beautiful um it is definitely like creation inspired it's definitely game of thrones inspired um i think it makes me think back on the kind of last shots of king's landing we see in season seven or eight of game of thrones right before daenerys goes full girl boss uh, and raises it uh, and and it makes me think that like I wish that Game of Thrones had had gone with more of this vibe for King's Landing towards the end. I know they did a lot of weird setting changes, but like uh, it is it definitely looks good, uh, and it is definitely Game of Thrones uh, uh, like done as I think it could have been if it had had a billion dollars behind it. And that's interesting because I actually did not think it reminded me of King's Landing, <laughs> but um, it reminded me a little bit of Bravos, but. Um, I got a very Minas Tirith vibe out of it. Um, the circular structures, the mm. archways, and kind of like the circular just layout to the entire city, even if it was kind of like broken up into various parts, into various cliff sides. Um, and definitely a little bit of the Argonath vibe uh, from the giant person. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's it's in the same tradition of fantasy television uh, shooting. Um, they have some good establishing shots, some good sweeping shots where the camera is very kinetic, uh, moving up and down, left and right. Mm. Um, there's a lot pretty solid detail work. Um, you can kind of make out all the tiers and uh, stratifications. Maybe that's because I was like doing push-ups right in front of the television so I could make that out. Um, but <laughs> it had a good sense of like otherworldliness to it. Um, a little bit of uh, what's it called? It, it was familiar, but it felt right for what I assume are men, um, at least a type of man, as opposed to something that is, you know, a more divine being or something more elf-like in nature. Mm. Uh, but maybe, see, that's that's probably where not having any of Tolkien's text uh, really plays an influence on me, because these people are just like, like weird men as opposed to like something elves. <laughs> so I expect it to be a little more 
mannish in terms of architecture and culture. If that no, no, sense. I think that's right. Um, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting for me is like, so so basically I think this is like the, the Balkans are trendy right now uh, against the best efforts of the Balkans and against the best efforts of everybody in Europe. The Balkans are trendy right now. Uh, and so this is like Balkan core uh, Middle Earth uh, or Balkan core Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, and um, it, I, I think it's kind of funny for me because... Um, Tolkien in in his various letters and and notes and auxiliary texts um, talks about his inspiration for Numenor as having been uh, varyingly uh, uh, ancient Greece uh, and and Byzantium in the same way that he would pull pulled from Byzantium to to build out Gondor um, and the thing that's interesting for me about ancient Greece and and Byzantium is I grew up in countries that were part of the ancient Greek empires and the ancient uh, ancient uh, Byzant well Byzantine empires, Byzantium, uh, and also the ancient Roman empires. And um, there is a very specific kind of visual language to the architecture there. And that is distinguished from the ancient architecture that is still Greek and 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 Roman in the Balkans, but it is slightly different. Um, and that is like both influenced by the sort of like Maghrabi kind of uh, latter day Ottoman um, influence, uh, Arab influence, Islamic influence, uh, certainly like in, in the Middle East uh, and North Africa. Um, but also that, like the the sort of Croatian uh, 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 Serb uh, architecture uh, is more sort of northerly European influenced, um, and you can see those things, and those feel two very different ways to me because I grew up in in one of them, and so know it quite well. And this doesn't feel like the kind of North Africa, uh, like ancient Egypt, ancient Greece to me. This feels like the European one, where I'm looking at them and going those fuckers are in the EU. How dare they? Um, so like, I, I, I get, I, I totally get what you're saying there as well. It's just kind of interesting to me because that distinction just does crop up, but that's definitely a product of my brain poisoning specifically. Since we're on the topic of the EU, um, <laughs> I mentioned earlier that um, this, uh, the, the kind of political divide we're finding here in Numenor is um, it's basically kind of partitioned, um, not like, legally but like there seems to be two subgroups here there is a pro-elf or an elf friend uh, subgroup and elendil seems to be part of that um elendil was the captain of the ship that saved uh, galadriel and halbrand i guess we should point out um and then there seems to be i guess the high court here who seems a little more standoffish to the elves um not happy to see galadriel here uh, is this anything that's based in the works or what it what what is the dynamic that's supposed to be at play here yes so yeah okay so for what i could say in an hour-long episode like yes it is based on the works uh I, I hope that people can understand that my face just fell uh drastically and i've aged about 30 years just saying that but like yes at the bare bones it is influenced by by what is said about numenor in the silmarillion and in the appendices of the lord of the rings um what is vastly different is that like the is the faithful and the faithless, right? So Elendil is the leader of the Numenorean faithful. Like the, the this is an intensely religious conflict. It is those who have like forsaken the Valar, uh, who have turned their back on God uh, and and the gift of man, um, versus the the people who have not and who have kept their faith and in, in the Valar. Um, it's sort of only kind of orthogonally related to the elves. Like the elves are kind of the vessels for the Valar, but not really. Like it's this addition of the question of the elves is fucking weird because it's mostly about the Valar. It's about God. It's not about like the fucking priests. Anyways, um, okay. it's not partitioned like that at all. Like like the faithful are um, definitely more faithful-ish or more loyal to the lords of Andania, who's who's Elendil. And um, but there's not like this kind of pseudo apartheid thing happening. 
Okay, no, I think that explains a lot because uh, one of the ways I found this episode kind of effective was that they, uh, by having Galadriel and Halbrand kind of navigate Numenor um, separately for most of the episode, um, it gave us a chance to kind of cover more ground, especially someone like me who's being introduced to a lot of these people and the um, this location for the first time. And Galadriel was, you know, spent most of her time with the Lendil, so we got a little more of that elf friend side. But that's also someone who's seems to have a little more higher station in Numenor. Just broadly, I don't know exactly what his station is in relation to Tarmiriel and our Um, But then we have Halbrand, who's kind of, he's at like the pubs with the locals, and they seem to be more of the people who don't like the elves because they're teasing Halbrand about it. Um, so it did kind of feel like we were getting a look both at the class divide and also the cultural divide by having these two characters um, kind of split off during this episode and navigate um, the, their separate paths. Yeah, and I like I just have to get this out of the way. I don't I, like whatever the fuck they've done to Lendil is bad. Uh, like I like I will I will force myself to be conciliatory on a lot of these things. They have fucked up Elendil and they have fucked up Tarmiriel and it is bad. Like Elendil is not some fucking upstart, young upstart captain. He is the second most important person in the kingdom. The Lords of Andania, like it like like effectively this the scene where um where Tarmiriel is like Tafarazon, uh well who who is Elendil would be like the fucking queen being like who is Prince Charles? And I recognize that she's dead now and was probably demented at the end, but he is also literally her son. It would be insane for her to not know who he was and Muriel being like Tafara's own who is this fella as if he's like some super entrepreneurial like Amazon fella starting up a bookstore in a basement in Seattle gonna become a fucking billionaire at the end like no bullshit this is not who this is the politics of Numenor the fascinating internal politics of Numenor lies in the fact that this is two of the most important people Farazod, who usurps uh, Muriel, and uh, Elendil, who is who is second in command, fighting for the spiritual future of the people of Numenor. It is not some innovative young uh, uh, disruptor coming up through the ranks, uh, through the meritocracy, to to spit in the face of these people who have been old and conservative, like culturally conservative for too long. This is not that plot, and it is a weird change. Yeah. So uh, with Galadriel and Halbrand. Elendil brings them to the high court at first. Like he explicitly says um, he dare not like pass judgment or take any action without like consulting them. I think that was um, what was going on. And this is where we see Galadriel kind of just stay on her bullshit, basically, (laughs) Um, you know, get me, get me a boat and I need to go. I have stuff to do back to Middle Earth, yada, yada, yada. Um, And this is where Halbrand starts to like reveal that, he has a little bit of political savvy or uh, diplomacy skills. Um, he's like, oh, you know, we can hang out here for a little bit. And he starts like kind of giving away that the later reveal where he's actually going to be. He's some dude like capital, some capital dude <laughs> um, that we'll get to in a little bit. But um, I felt it was fairly decent way to establish him because he didn't really have much of anything in the first episodes other than to just to seem like shifty. Yeah. Um, and this actually gives him some kind of, I don't know, broader characterization that I kind of enjoyed. Um, when they arrive, he's like, you know, we should kneel. And then Tar Muriel says, no one kneels in Numenor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's also what they say beyond the wall. Mance Raider makes fun of Jon Snow for it. Um, is this anything, no. <laughs> a thing? Because, 
that's all I could think of is like, ah, we're doing the Mance Raider scene again. Uh, you um, know what? That's maybe- so funny because I definitely would have given them credit. I was actually planning on giving them credit for this line up until the minute you said that Mance Raider does this. Um, and, and it's not knock on Game of Thrones at all. Like, it, it, it isn't. Uh, and I think that the Mance Raider stuff is actually quite fun. Um, but uh, no, this isn't uh, a thing uh, in, in Numenor. It's also definitely not a thing with Muriel. Muriel wouldn't have said this. She was faithful to the end. Uh, she was just put in horrific positions by virtue of having been raped. Uh, so um, I think they might be trying to do something slightly underhand with her where she's like actually like fully aware. Uh, I think that the character change for her specifically is disgusting but the this no one deals in Numenor is a technically an extrapolation of the like hubris of uh the Numenorians the latter-day Numenorians but it's also not really a done thing like they were still very strictly aristocratic uh and definitely had a king and definitely kept that with them for all the way through into Arnor and Gondor they were not egalitarian (laughs) All right. And then the other thing um, I found kind of interesting here, it's something that um, I flag a lot in A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm sorry that I'm going to keep coming back to that. <laughs> I know I know, Emily really did not want this to be Tolkien's Game of Thrones or whatever, but yeah. um, I like the double play of whether, you know, Galadriel's like, am I your prisoner? And then Tarmiriel's like, no, you're our guest. Um, that is a very important part of the class politics in A Song of Ice and Fire, um, especially with highborn hostages. Um, I think Theon Greyjoy specifically is a character who is someone who doesn't have an identity as either one or the other as the ward of Ned Stark and of House Winter of House Stark and Winterfell. Um, because he is there because his dad started a rebellion, and if his dad rebelled again, they would take Theon's head. Um, but otherwise he is, you know, kind of raised as one of the people. So there's always this um kind of c- conflict or push and pull between a guest and prisoner in the highborn society. Um, and I'm very interested in it. I don't think they're going to do anything with it. Cause I assume Galadriel's just going to get on her ass back to middle earth within an episode. Oh, yeah. um, but that is something I kind of flag as a way they can actually show the way that like higher class people get preferential treatment, but also how those systems can also work against them in these kind of societies. Yeah. Yep, I, I would agree with you on that. I think it is a good point. It's also like very Mary Queen of Scots, like I think uh, in nature. Um, I think these scenes were interesting for me because I think they show the weakness of the elves so far. Uh, like not in a, a, a lore sense. I think I mean in how they've filmed been filmed because like Galadriel's only defining feature from the people of Numenorian besides being white as a fucking daisy is having blonde hair. Um, and that's the only way, like, visually they've been able to distinguish her. Um, like, Morfid Clark is acting her ass off uh, and acting her ass off against the script that I would say is doing her no favors at all. Um, but, like, she just looks like another human being standing in a court of human beings. Um, and this is not what Galadriel is. And, like, um, there's this moment, this shock moment, where she says, I'm Galadriel of the Noldor. Uh, and all the people in the court are like, oh, an elf, a fucking elf. But, like, how had they not twigged that before? She's a fucking elf. Like, she is going to look different to these people. And it's not until she announces her name that they're like, oh, she's an elf. And I'm like, they shouldn't have put that in because that that uncovers the weakness of of how they've done the elves so far in, in 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 that the elves are just some guys right now they really are just guys walking around who are actually so far mostly shorter than the men we've seen which is very <laughs> funny um and also just like pale white girls <laughs> um in everything i'm very much pro cast weirder looking people yes. like just across the board but um to uh peter jackson's film's credit like 
at least like with Hugo Weaving and Kate Blanchett and like even the guy who's playing Haldir, there is something to them and how they're presented that's at least not exactly like just some dudes. They're not, you know, Saul Goodman like fucking <laughs> Kelly Brimboy looks like. Um, it, I mean, it, it, there was something to that casting that it just feels it. I mean, to me, this could just be like any, this could be a knight's tale in terms of the way yeah. that people are fucking like uh, costumed and performing here. Yeah. Um, and that's not a diss on the knight's tale. I rather like the knight's tale. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, I agree with you. There's just not anything here. And I really, really like Morfitt Clark's performance so far. Yeah. I find her storyline the least compelling so of all of boring. them. so fucking boring. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, I know you don't like the Arendir stuff, but I find that infinitely more interesting just because at least it's something I have no context for. So mm. it can at least surprise me or show me something. Um, but she's like the character that's written for her is very one note so far. Yeah. Um, and it's, she starts being a little more maybe in the end of this episode, but it's still very much like, like I enjoy her going full solid snake and like stealthing across the <laughs> city, I guess. Oh, I cute, mean, yeah. that, that makes for good, you know, 30 second stuff. You know, it's something else to her character other than the fact that she, someone's vaguely telling her not to do something. And then she's like, no, I must do this. And yeah. everything, every word that comes out of my mouth will be in service of the one thing I must do. Yeah. Um, which, I know she's determined. I already got that characterization yeah. out yeah. of her. Now it just feels like it's actively just either not great writing or they're just kind of stalling with her character until some other plot machination moves her to whatever her next thing is. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I also think the thing that's kind of funny for, for me on this is like, I, I, I definitely find Galadriel's plotline more compelling so far, but that is 100% because of the things that I am bringing to it, which is I'm loving the character assassination of Galadriel. Like, this is going to break Galadriel as this, like, it, like as commonly thought of as like this kind of like, cool and commanding and stern kind of figure she's fucked for that kate blanchett's galadriel done d-o-a like rise of the insane awful galadriel and i'm delighted by that like i think that's great like galadriel is now going to be widely recognized as like sucking ass and perfect and um, the aaron Deer one i don't really have anything against him so like the things that i find boring i'm like this kind of just sucks for Ismael Cruz Cordova. Like, I feel bad for him and I wish he had something better. The Galadriel one, I'm like, yes, the reign of terror has ended. <laughs> uh, let's let's wrap up with Galadriel before we hop to Halbrand, because uh, later in the episode, uh, Elendil takes Galadriel to, like, the elf-friendly part of town. <laughs> um, it's uh, I compared it to Cyprus, to Emily <laughs> off mic. It's basically partitioned between the Greek and the Turkish Cypriots, um, which, sure, <laughs> um, I guess that analogy works. Um, I wonder if they have the same racial div divide, because I think the Greeks were 80-20% to the Turkish Cypriots, yeah. so I wonder what the n the numbers favor here. Um, <laughs> but he takes them to the Hall of Lore, which, um, when, when I give you a chance to speak, Emily, please let me know if that's actually a token phrase, because if it's not, that's about the laziest naming I could ever think yeah. of. Um, but the Hall of Lore, um, and this is where we get kind of get the reveal that everything I said last episode was correct. Um, that the symbol that Sauron's leaving is a map of Mordor and possibly some language or a script, a plan, I think is the word they used about how they're going to come together or what they're going to do in coming together. Um, that much is unclear, but pretty much the whole mystery of that symbol was revealed right here. And it yeah. was exactly as we expected. Yeah, you fucking nailed it on that one. 
Um, yeah, the Hall of Lore, not a Tolkien thing, definitely lazy. Um, I'm really glad, though, that you twigged this as a lazy naming thing before uh, I did, because like I, I was kind of just w willing to kind of let it roll off my back. But I actually think this is indicative of a wider problem with this series so far, which is all of the naming is fucking lazy. Every single time they've been allowed to name something, they've done it in the laziest way possible. And like back when they announced what Tier Harad was going to be, I like I got up out of the couch, you know, my super like comfy armchair actually I was sitting in and like went storming into the kitchen where my partner was doing dishes. And I was like, these guys are so fucking lazy and they're just doing the like lamest versions of everything. Every single name they could possibly do. Tear Harad, are you shitting me? Southern Watch, that's so lazy. And uh, and I was like, this is just like, they're, they're saying that they're really interested in the lore and they're not. And they're just doing things that like anybody could get in two seconds of Googling. And like, Hall of Lore is exactly that. Uh, and it's also, I, I did a quick Google. It's from a video game is where like, it's the kind of first search result on Google. Some sort of <laughs> fantasy video game. Uh, and then there's also... Uh, Actually, a lot of Lord of the Rings Online instance, um, but at least Lord of the Rings Online had the good sense to translate Hall of Lore into the Black Speech. Uh, so yes, this is where I'm at with this. You are right. It's lazy. It's yeah. I will say that Emily is giving our patrons much more creative and clever names that are much richer than anything of the original <laughs> names in this show has had, whether it's character or location. Um, I really think that um, you should really sign up and allow Emily to give you a name because they are outstanding. And we will read some um, near the end of this episode. Um, so let's hop on over to Halbrand uh, real quick. Um, once hit, he kind of like splits off from Galadriel in the middle part of this episode. Um, well, A, at that kind of like presentation in front of the high court, he gives Elendil an awkward hug um, <laughs> and then steals uh, the dagger off him. Um, they're very clearly trying to make this guy into, I don't know, like, semi Jamie Lannister. Um, he gets a strong Aragorn vibe later, but he's also yeah. kind of like conniving and a little bit of a cheat. Maybe like, uh, I don't know who's a good uh, cop, maybe like uh, Oberyn Martell even maybe um, just, he's a little bit of a scamp. He's a little bit of a thief, um, but we're supposed to kind of like him. Um, he's one of the few characters in this who has an actual edge to him. Um, I think part of the issues with Galadriel and um, Aaron Deere is that they don't have a lot of edge to their character, and this guy at least feels like he has some. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's just what happens when you have, like, a white guy with dirty blonde hair who's kind of covered in dirt. Um, it just kind of gives that vibe of kind of a dirtbag, but also kind of compelling. Yeah. Uh, maybe my brain is stuck in, like, 2011 prestige TV no, no. era, like, mindset. But um, we do find some interesting things about him. Um, he has an interest in smithing, which... Uh, we'll save our secret Sauron watch for the spoiler section, but you can probably guess where that might be going. <laughs> um, and then the, he goes to a bar to have some drinks where he tries to buy everyone around to kind of diffuse the tension is like, this one's not worth the effort here. Let me buy you a drink kind of shit. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Do you have um, any kind of thoughts on this? Like him, him trying to like basically fit in with the crowd and have drinks, but still kind of getting into a bar fight all the same. Yeah, so so I think um, I think they could have done something with this, and I think again it is the mark of the kind of laziness of the show and the like kind of thoughtlessness of the show that they didn't do anything with this. Um, and and one of the things that I think is important is that we already know that he is from the Southlands, which is Mordor. Um, and um, if we think back um, to the, the the Lord of the Rings books themselves, uh, in which there's a, a really fascinating speech given by the one and only Faramir about the uh, three types of men. Uh, so the the 
the the uh the Numenorians, uh, the high men, the middlemen, the Rohirrim, and the like the the men of Dale, that sort of tier of moral men, uh, and then the men of darkness, the low men. Uh, and and when um when when he's talking about that kind of three different tiers of, of men based on their morality, um, the men of the the of Harad uh, and the men of uh, Mordor, uh, who didn't really exist, but I guess you now, um, and the men of the Far East are all part of this low men uh, category. Uh, and, and the thing that is interesting is um, Numenor, the Numenorians um, colonized. Uh, Harad, uh, the the south, uh, and they attempted to colonize the east, uh, and it was their colonization of the south that ultimately de- led to their downfall. It led to their corruption, and it led to Sauron managing to 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 wriggle his way into uh, into their halls of power and to ultimately get them uh, fucking killed. Uh, and and given that this guy, this Halbrand fella, who you know, secret Sauron uh, coming up, uh, who knows who he could be, uh, may or may not be a, a figurehead of the the Southlands. Um, and given that he is um, able to ha- interface on this sort of kind of like quote unquote working class uh, modality of socializing, i.e. drinking and gambling and fighting, um, it would have been interesting to have made a point of this being like, this is part of the wider corruption of the wider fall of the men of Numenor. And this fella comes in and rather than the Numenorians being the one to egg him on and the Numenorians being the one to already display this sort of violent and aggressive behavior, have him be the one to kind of egg it on and the one to kind of instigate it. And then that might be a way of talking about the really interesting politics of Numenorian colonization and and the the sort of ills of uh, of imperialism that Tolkien himself was so fascinated by and, and, and had such conflicting opinions on. Um, and instead, what they've done is they've shut down the possibility of Numenorean colonization because they say that the that Numenorean ships never go to Middle Earth, which is of course a huge problem because Dol Amroth, which is a massive constituent part of Gondor, needs to be founded by the Numenorians, uh, lest uh, they fucking lose the Ring War. Uh, but also, the the colonization of Harad is how uh, Sauron is caught. So they've cut that off, and then I don't think they've made anything of this like really fascinating kind of moral standpoint, moral uh, hierarchy that that Tolkien set up in the books that is not present in the Peter Jackson movies. So I think it was a bit of a cell phone. Uh, there was a lot of potential there. And in the end, they didn't really do much with it. And I was kind of a bit bored to see like a whole bunch of like guys with like decidedly working class, like like working class guys, working class fellows and Numenor doing the like traditional we're going to beat the shit out of people because I'm like, we've seen this a million times before and it's boring. Yeah, it's very. This is like very tired kind of trope in fantasy in general. I've seen it a fair amount in Game of Thrones, too, but Game of Thrones did it better. Um, it's just like. <laughs> Kind of just like the antagonistic bar scene, uh, just to kind of have something to do for people. Uh, but uh, one thing I'm just going to admit here is I completely miss that whole like the high man and low man, like the stratification of men in Tolkien's world. Um, so when he was when uh, the people of Numenor were calling Halbrand low man, mm-hmm. um, I just thought that was a way of calling him like poor or commoner um i was thinking of the metallica song low man's lyric which is on like load or reload um i did not think of it it, i just thought of it as like a standard like you know human people on normal earth expression um and i forgot (laughs) that it has some kind of significance in middle earth specifically in terms of um the tears of man and how the people of numenor might be looking down on him as low man i just thought they were calling him just like 
vagabond because he basically washed up on the shores. Oh, you, um, you were actually they, like mishearing it. They weren't saying low man. They were shouting low main at him. They thought he was going to the <laughs> takeaway to get Chinese. <laughs> um, all right. So we end Halbrand this episode with uh, Galadriel uh, reintroduce or coming back up to him and saying, hey, you're actually some dude. Um, it looks like he was a king from the Southlands or at mm-hmm. least someone very important 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 um not impotent uh, possibly impotent we actually don't know that yet um but uh and then uh basically galadriel says uh some greater force brought us together um some greater force that men are not able to uh put voice to they call it hope or whatever destiny yeah. um she says she says some says some shit um but with halbrand being uh, a made up character um and possibly on that secret sauron watch um, I don't know what they're exactly going for here. If there's going to be some big dramatic irony about him actually being who Galadriel has been looking for this whole time, or if something else is at play, um, anything you could tell from this? No, he's just dog shit Aragorn, isn't he? Like, he's just awful Aragorn. Like all of the mean things I said about Aragorn, uh, and the story of our fellowship of the ring coverage, this dude embodies, um, but without the coolness of like theoretically being on the good side. Um, I do think it was really funny, though, that they, they tried to end it on high drama with this conversation between him and Galadriel, and every single one of Galadriel's lines read like a kindergarten teacher's posters, like, shoot for the moon, even if you'll miss, you'll end up among the stars. Like, shut up, Galadriel, just tell us who he actually is, and let's go. Uh, yeah, who knows? Um, I am deeply resentful of the fact that you uh, pointed out c- correctly, I think, last episode that he is meant to be the heartthrob of the show, because I'm just like, he's not good-looking. There it is. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, he's framed very much like Aragorn in his cell, the way his hair is hanging over his face, the way he's kind of giving certain looks. Um, and I think they're going, there's something in there about how his ancestors pledged themselves to Morgoth, um, which I think is going to be playing on the same kind of thematic vein where Aragorn was like the same weakness, you know, flows through my veins. I think he says about a sealed door to Arwen in mm-hmm. the Fellowship movie. Um, and I think so they're framing this Aragorn lookalike character um, essentially with something similar in terms of uh, what might be going through his mind or through his blood or whatever. Um, things like this, especially in a prequel, especially when you're basically copying another version of another character in the same story, it tends to only really be effective if you actually end up doing something completely different or insane with it. Yeah. Um, or else, like you say, it's just going to be um, cookie cutter Aragorn, uh, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think is going to be that interesting overall. All right. Uh, so if there's nothing else to say there. We should finish up with the Numenor stuff with Elendil and Isildur and the entire family. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if they have a last name. We'll call them Elendil Smith and Isildur Smith. Uh, so we're catching up <laughs> with the Smiths. Um, so we get we get just kind of broader character introductions here. We get um, them as seafaring types. It seems like they're sailors. Mm. Um, we see uh, Isildur being introduced as kind of being like trying out or auditioning or training to be on the Sea Guard, which I don't know if that's a thing. Nope. Um, that is definitely a castle in Westeros. Uh, belongs to House Malister. Oh, for fuck's um, sake. And then we also get a little bit of uh, Isildur looking to uh, like the horizon, to the mountains, and hearing a woman whisper his name. Um, this could possibly be his made-for-show sister um, that we get introduced to thereafter. Um, I don't have a lot of stuff 
other than to say this is fascinating to me. Um, mm. These are people with names that don't have a lot of character other than Isildur saying no to <laughs> Elrond uh, in Mount Doom. Uh, so uh, I, I have no real takes other than I'm interested to see where this goes. Um, but I'm sure you you are in a very different boat. Uh, literally, you are not in the same boat as them. Uh, go, but uh, what did you think of the introductions to this family? Yeah, I mean, the, the okay, so so here's the thing. I, like, I find Numenor as itself fascinating. I find Numenor as it is told in, uh, in The Lord of the Rings and in The Silmarillion, I find that fascinating. I think the characters of uh, Isildur, Elendur, and Anarion are fascinating. I, I think they're very interesting. I enjoy reading about them. I do not think they need a story of their own. Um, and the reason I don't think they need a story of their own is because nobody fucking gives a shit about watching a movie about the most penitent, holy, and morally righteous monk you've ever met. You don't because it, it's boring. It's a boring story. There's nothing to be told, uh, and um, uh, and it doesn't really need to be spun out into fifty fucking hours of TV. Um, but and- enough about Kenobi. <laughs> oh God, that is okay. No, but that's that's exactly it, right? Like that's exactly it. Um, like like um. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is what Elendil and Anarion and Isildur are meant to be in that he is so convinced of his own moral righteousness he never has to have a moment of, of hesitation or worry and 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 is by and large actually morally correct now obviously we can quibble about the the politics of the Jedi at the sort of end of the old republic but like the the Jedi are embody within the universe the morally good side of the force um so they never need to be worried about what they're doing and they never need to have moments of self-doubt um, and that's what Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion are um they are they are the only people who hold fast against this rising tide of heathenry um because this is an explicitly religious story um and so and so they're boring we don't really need a story about them and we definitely know, don't need to see them questioning themselves because they don't question themselves they know what's right they do it they get it done uh until Isildur doesn't um, and, and the tragedy of Isildur, uh, when he takes the ring, is that nobody would have ever seen it coming because he was so morally forthright and so morally steadfast. And and he was this ultimate sort of uh, reverential and penitent figure uh, who, who, who was the embodiment of goodness. And that he then fell to the ring is a, is a statement about the power of the ring and the potential fall of man rather than a statement about who Isildur is as a person, as a person and as a character. And so um, I think what they've said is they've seen the fact that Isildur took the ring and are like, oh, he must be kind of back and forth and a bit of a rebel. No, no, he isn't. And and that's missing the point of his character. Um, so I think that's insane. Um, they've lowered the Lords of Handania. Um, already done that. Think that's ridiculous. Um, I think uh, as well, there's something kind of weird about not having an Aryan around. Uh, like, I know they're also trying to play it up as, isn't it weird that an Aryan isn't around? But I think it's weird <laughs> that an Aryan isn't around, but not for the reason they want me to, which is that, like, I think, if anything, um, an Aryan ought to be there to show that, like, uh, to to show that there is a, a kind of multi-pronged, a necessarily multi-pronged approach to how they are going to handle being the faithful in a world of the faithless. Uh, and there's a reason why they split the kingdom and that's really crucial. And so not having that there uh, from the start seems a bit weird. Um, Elendil, poor guy, own Lloyd actor, seems quite good, very charming, quite charismatic, definitely a lot better than most of the actors we've seen so far. Uh not Elendil, definitely not playing Elendil. No idea who he is or why he's here, but like, this isn't Elendil. Uh, Isildur is not Isildur. I don't know why he's here. Um, they're trying to do the uh, Chris Pine, Jim, 
James Kirk thing at the start of 2009 uh, okay. with him, where he's like sitting at the table after getting the shit kicked out of him uh, for being a drunkard in Iowa, uh, a, a new thing that nobody ever experienced before. Uh, and he's like holding the little <laughs> Millennium Falcon being like, and, and, and Pike, Admiral Pike is like, your father did it in nine years or whatever. And, and Chris Pine Pike uh, puts down the Millennium Falcon, no, the USS Enterprise, uh, and is like, um, I'll do it in eight years. Uh, and then they smash cut to the Beastie Boys and him shagging a green girl. That's what they're trying to do with this older here. And it's not compelling because he is just a fucking monk. <laughs> um, I think that's good for now. I have some questions about the missing brother and Narian, but I'm going to ask those to Emily in the spoiler section, um, just in case it is something that the uh, show circles back to. Uh, we can leave Numenor for now. Uh, we'll head to the Southlands first. Um, here we're catching up with Aaron Deer, the very memorable first episode plotline that we couldn't remember <laughs> how it ended. Um, essentially, we see that uh, Aaron Deer is one of many elves being made slaves and prisoners. I think he is shown like imprisoned with some of the people uh, that he was actually serving with in whatever the South Watch or whatever his elfish contingent was that was in Tir Harad. Hmm. Um, and it they're basically digging uh, for something underneath the earth. Um, the orcs have put up these massive tents so that they can kind of avoid the sunlight, um, you know, which is, you know, kind of an interesting idea. I always like when they acknowledge the sun with the orcs and stuff like that. And, you know, it's kind of giving the uh, vibe that they're looking for something. I think they actually explicitly say that they're looking for some kind of weapon or relic or something like that, which makes me believe it's the sword we saw in the premiere. Um, I don't know why that one specific sword would be all that powerful or that necessary, but that's I guess I'm not writing the story. So <laughs> Bilbo Baggins my... about the ring he found in Goblin Town. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I think they're using the name Adar for Sauron. Uh, um, I can't remember if that's one of his names. It probably no. is, but uh-uh. oh, it isn't. Okay. No. Uh, can Adar you speak in, in, about this a little bit? Yeah. Oh boy, can I ever? Uh, so Adar in in Sindarin it means father. Uh, this okay this was one of the moments where i was like these guys are just pulling the shit from the movies and have no reference to the books and so adar is interesting because it is is glossed fully glossed cinder and it's definitely a word that we knew that tolkien wrote uh, in cinder and translated as father and it is uh cinder and i should keep underlining this it is cinder and um and uh it doesn't really show up all that often in the lord of the rings or in the appendices um I would actually probably go so far as to say I don't think it shows up at all in the text of The Lord of the Rings itself. Uh, I may be wrong on that, but if it does, it's maybe once or twice maximum. Where does it show up a lot, though? Uh, In The Lord of the Rings films, where Arwen is saying Adar or Ada all the time. Uh, and and uh, it's not like one of the new Neocender and beautifully done Neocender and creations. Uh, so what they've done is they've definitely just heard the word Adar thrown around a lot in the Lord of the Rings films and went, that's our word uh, and shown it here. Uh, the thing that I find really interesting about this is that they uh, are doing the weird thing that Peter Jackson also did. Well, not weird. It's not weird per se, but like Peter Jackson had all of the elvish languages uh, in uh, in the movies uh, boiled down to just Sindarin. Um, they're doing that here with Quenya. So uh, Arondir, who is meant to be a sylvan elf, like a Sindar elf, uh, an elf who speaks Sindarin, is speaking in Quenya. Um, 
And like, and and they they identify in the subtitles repeatedly as Quenya. It also sounds like Quenya in a certain like Quenya. Uh, but then they're using Adar, which is the sender and word, uh, and uh, and having him identify that right away. Um, and it's it's interesting because it's this like weird fucking muddle of all of the fascinating linguistic uh, uh, politics of Middle Earth. And again, they're doing this thing that I hate, which is where like in search of adding politics to Tolkien's world, they're actually flattening the accident politics. Uh, and doing weird shit instead. Um, so Adar means father. Uh, it probably actually sounds quite close to Anatar, uh, Anatar, uh, which is Sauron's uh, name that he uses in, in Aragian, the Lord of Gifts. Uh, but the father stuff is also funny because it's just like they're calling Sauron daddy, uh, but in Sindarin. So the Ark speaks Sindarin now. So uh, as long as these JavaScript errors don't mean anything, I did a <laughs> Lord of the Rings text search while you were talking, and Adar is not mentioned in any, or at least not in the three Lord of the Rings books, not The Hobbit, not The Silm. A classic. Um, so it is, yeah, very, very, very likely not. Um, yeah, so you were correct in everything you were saying there. So that is funny. It is weird to call Sauron daddy. Um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> I, um, but that that also... I, I still remain that everything they're showing us with Aaron Deere and even this like commander that they're framing as Adar, I still don't think that's going to be Sauron. Yeah. Um, I think this is all big misdirect uh, energy uh, because it's either going to be other people that, well, I'll just say for the spoiler section so we can kind of wrap up here. <laughs> um, so the only other thing I'll say about this is they're, they're trying. Um, I, I feel like they're trying here because. <laughs> Um, they're, they're doing this, you know, they're framing these elves as like, uh, you know, related to the forest. They're very like in tune with forest. That's why they have that whole opening narration. We copped for this podcast, you know, elves have their forest to maintain. Um, so they kind of make a big deal about cutting down this tree. Um, and then they do something that I think is like wholly unearned where Aaron Deer volunteers to cut down the tree where none of the other elves would. And he's like, I will cut it. Um, and it's very much supposed to be like fucking uh, Frodo saying, I will take yeah. it um, at the Council of Elrond. Um, they even do the same kind of thing where everyone stops and looks at him. The soundtrack <laughs> kind of gives way here. Um, and it's like, I like the idea here. This would mean a little bit more if they kind of earned it. Yeah. Um, it just felt like they were just like, oh, this was a thing that happened. Um, and there was, I think, something else. I think, like, the slow motion with Galadriel on the horse. Yeah. Which, by the way, there was a horse in this episode. Yay. I know we complained about that last time. There is a horse. Like, there's this, like, really long slow-mo shot with Galadriel on the horse. I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. Like, the, like it looks good, but why the hell? What what does this mean? Why are we getting a slow-motion epic score shot here? Um, I don't get it. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of the same thing with Aaron Deere and his I Will Cut It. Like, I know what they're doing. I know the trees are important to the elves and having an elf volunteer to cut it down is meaningful. Yeah. But they didn't actually do anything, especially since Aaron Deere has been very flatly characterized yeah. as just like a no-nonsense. I, I don't even know what his agenda is. I just know he's no no nonsense about it. Yeah. Um. So it's just like... <laughs> Without that, whereas with Fellowship, with that Frodo, I will take it. We've had an hour and a half where I'm like, I understand who Frodo was before leaving the Shire. I understand what's happening to him, how he's becoming more savvy, how he's starting to think about things. Um, there's just a lot more going with that character. So when he says, I will take it, I understand the sacrifice of him deciding not to go back to the Shire at that point. I understand what that means. Yeah. Um, I don't know what this means for Aaron Deer. Yeah. 
I mean, this this whole show, the whole story of this show so far is like unearned emotional moments. Um, like like every single kind of scene for this has been like they're making a reference to the Peter Jackson films that I that I don't think they've earned. Uh, but the one that actually made me laugh out loud, like I had to pause the TV show and go do a lap in the house uh, when I was watching it, is the bit where they try and redo the Boromir death scene with that one fellow who is I'm pretty sure totally unnamed who gets nailed twice with the arrows and then he like falls down dying in slow motion exactly like sean bean does in fellowship and i'm like this is fucking laughable i don't even know this guy's name i'm not gonna cry like i did for well i don't but i might cry for boromir like i have no idea who this guy is like i couldn't even tell if he was a good guy or a bad guy until they kind of had to do the half turn to break the peter jackson shot so i could make sure that he was like one of the guys that i was meant to be rooting for but like the whole thing the whole way through all of this is like they're trying to do these big emotional moments but like i don't think they i think this thing was kind of halfway written by computers who like know algorithmically what emotional scenes and movies are meant to look like but like can't actually bridge that gap to feeling emotions um and so just do like oh these guys will love this because the focus group data says uh slow motion and loud music and someone getting killed means that people cry but like it's totally devoid of any emotional or cultural context so it just is like someone's dying cool fine next yeah i was about to say like this could work if, like, because he, uh, Aaron Deer climbs up the hill, sees this guy who's like stopped in his tracks. He turns around and you see an arrow. And if Aaron Deer was just immediately pulled back down into the pits by orcs and put at knife point, um, that would work. That was quick. That would be great. That'd be perfect. But no, it like the camera lingers on Aaron Deer, like staring at him. The score swells. And it's like, like I said in the like a couple minutes ago, I wasn't a hundred percent sure if he was one of the guards that, or elves that was stationed alongside Arondir, um, just because like they didn't establish any of them in the first couple episodes. So when they start just kind of talking here about breaking free and making for the tree line, I don't know if there was an established relationship where they're just like people bonding together in the moment. Oh, um, but yeah. He I is. Just was... He's the captain. It just occurred to me. He is the captain who comes up and is all weird about him going home. Because I remember being like, why is this elf captain old as balls? It's him. He's not a man. He's an elf. Oh, uh, God. Uh, sorry. They really haven't signposted this show well at all. I can't remember any of the characters. Yeah. like So, so this is how... And this is probably like my HBO prestige, not just Game of Thrones, but just how I would do that is if you're doing that scene, you literally have a scene where Aaron Deere and this commander guy like are sitting and having like a meal of whatever they feed them, like maggots or whatever. (laughs) And like they actually talk about one of their experiences while serving on their watch. Um, So you actually establish some stake of characters and what their relationship is. Yeah. And then you can do something with that scene where the one dies when he breaks for the tree line. Yeah. Um, I think that's just like simple television, like kind of logic or like the language of telling television stories. If you're, if you're going to redshirt this guy, you got to give us something. So we actually (laughs) care, you know, Um, you can't just rely on the score and like one guy staring at him to do all the work. Yep. Agreed. All right. So, um, the last thing we'll talk about is the Harfoots, which there isn't a whole ton of plot here, um, but I do think we get some decent uh, cultural world building for them um, because uh, we basically get them. 
What, why don't you describe it first? Because you have a good joke here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So the the we've been uh, given the context in the previous two episodes that the the Harfoots are nomadic, uh, that they have some sort of festival right before they um, move on to their next spot. And in the second episode, we were given a couple very clear signposts that they're about to pick up and move again, uh, which is why it was so dramatic that Nori's father snaps his ankle in the way that he does. Well, in this episode. Um, we are starting to finally quite literally pick up uh, and get ready to move along. They're about to have their little festival. Uh, and and soon uh, we know that they are going to move and and falling behind um, as a conversation between Nori's frantic conversation between Nori's parents establishes for us um, falling behind out of the caravan that the that the Harfoots create as they migrate uh, is effectively a death sentence. Um, and and then they they establish this with this 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 hurried whispered conversation between Nori's parents uh, as they panic about what the hell they're going to do about his broken foot. Uh, and then there are a couple more references from the various kind of villagers about like the importance of staying in the the caravan and not getting lost in the caravan. And then they do this thing, the ceremony, where they read out the names of the people who fall behind in the caravan. And the energy that this has for me is exactly like Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery, where it's this like lovely pastoral, calm, so, like sober and somber kind of uh, community, rural community, um, where, you know, nothing could possibly be wrong with it because these are, to quote Gene Wilder and Blazing Saddles, simple people, salt of the earth, you know, morons. Um, and and instead, it's holy shit, they let these fucking guys die. If they don't keep up with the caravan, these hobbits let the other hobbits die. And it it, it, it did make me kind of crack up because it is so one-to-one with Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Um, but it was also so unexpected that the hobbits would be that vicious. And also, and I can now say this because the queen has just died, uh, the queen of England has just died, uh, very in line with what the fucking Brits are like as well. They will absolutely murder you if you step out of line. Uh, so... This is one bit of like cultural world building that I'm absolutely on board with. Yeah. Um, and I, I I actually really like the Hartford stuff. I will say the entire him reading the names off, it was very much staged like Bilbo's speech at the beginning <laughs> of Fellowship. Um, but it's definitely not as joyous, or at least I assume maybe there's one sicko Harfoot who's enjoying the list of dead names. Um, quite hard to tell. Um, I think this kind of works because I think. I think it underlines the key difference between the Harfoots that we're meeting here and the hobbits that we know from the films or whatever uh, is the fact that home and the Shire is such an important concept to the hobbits that we do know. And then seeing the Harfoots not have that, um, that they you know are always on the move. They don't have a home. Um, I think the Shire Reckoning happened in the Third Age, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so I don't know if we're going to actually see the Harfoots be settled. Maybe we'll get their like settlement on the Anduin, um, kind of like setting up the people that Smeagol came from. Uh, but um, I do think it is, it isn't, I think we're supposed to think like we're going to end this series with them kind of having a permanent place to stay, um, which I think, you know, I think that works. I think that's a good thematic uh, plot line or through line to pick up from the Jackson films and kind of play with uh, in this show. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is a lot of this episode is focused on like the records and the long histories and memories and lives of the elves and the men of Numenor. Uh, with the hobbits, we see kind of the other side of that spectrum where they don't have a hall of lore, literally. They don't have these 
you know, libraries full of histories written about them. And in Tolkien's world, we don't even really know about them until the Third Age, where they actually have some relevance to the broader machinations of the forces in the world. Um, so having them kind of share their names orally and through the oral tra- tradition is kind of interesting here. Um, their way of keeping memory and history alive is just so fundamentally not where it is with the elves and the Numenorians that I think that could be something that's very fertile if they decide to pursue that from a thematic standpoint. Yeah. Oh, big time. I agree. And I also think that if they do this right, it will imbue the the hobbits that we see in the Third Age with a certain degree of tragedy because they have forgotten so much. So where the Harfoots are missing these kind of two things of like a stable home, and and I would argue missing is maybe... Like I personally, like I know why the story is is arguing that they are missing these things. I would say that like not having a stable home and maybe having an oral tradition is not necessarily a loss, but that that's the thesis that the show is putting forward. So taking that thesis as a given, um, if the 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 Shire Hobbits get this thing that the Harfoots need, which is a stable home and safety, and um, they have succeeded in some ways, but then in the fact that they've kind of forgotten both the history of themselves as a people, but also the history of the world around them, they've also lost in other ways. Um, and, and there's that kind of tragedy there where like, even though they do have books and even though they do have libraries like The Great Smiles and Tuckborough, uh, and even do they, though they do have stable homes, there is still something that they lack and it's that connection to the outer world. And that's a quite nice way to like join up this kind of story with Nori to the, the story of Bilbo and then latterly Frodo and uh, Frodo and the boys uh, going out. And, and I think that would be a really nice setup if they manage to hold that yeah and i'll just uh say i think um markella kavanaugh who's playing nori remains the best overall performance on the show yeah um i I think she's great um they said her middle uh nori's middle name here it's like uh kellamark uh which i think is kind of an anagram for markella which i think is kind of (laughs) cute i don't i I don't think kellamark is any kind of hobbit name Mm because they read off a bunch of hobbit names and you can see it's pretty much a mashup of other hobbit names again not the most creative but um the hobbits themselves are not the most creative folks so i think that 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 works fine just for that yeah so we're going to stop there, um, but before we head into our spoiler section, um, we want to acknowledge uh, some of our patrons because we understand some of you might not listen to our spoiler section. Uh, so uh, first off, uh, you can sign up for our podcast at patreon.com slash mybromycatmikepod, um, and you can follow mybromycatmypod on Insta and Twitter, um, and then my my brother, my captain, my podcast is our email address at gmail.com. Sorry, I am really butchering uh, this <laughs> outro. I'm not used to doing it here. Um, but we also want to read first off our $10 patrons. Uh, Emily, do you want to read these first couple? Sure can. Uh, so thank you to Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aronmo Menyatar, and Maddie Hugh, also known as Edrener of Kolkothad. And then uh, for the... Uh, other two of our $10 patrons, uh, Ed the Revelator, also known as Silent Spider, the guardian of Kirith Ungal, and Johnny Flores Jr., Lothaman of Palenque. Um, and then we'd also like to uh, thank our $5 patrons uh, this time. Uh, Emily, why don't you read these? So this is Elise, a.k.a. Elenoma of Venhatole, which is, by the way, one of my favorite translations so far, because that's just New Jersey translated into Quenya. Uh, and then also Scott Rothman, also known as Bravo of the Catondil. <laughs> uh, Emily was very kind to throw in a pronunciation guide for me, but I just figured to let them uh, say it and allow you guys to be recognized without any kind of fuck. <laughs> so there you go. 
Um, so yeah, uh, follow us on social media, you know, subscribe, like, review us wherever you listen to us. Um, but otherwise, we are going to dive into our spoiler section right now. All right, so diving into some spoiler talk, I think the real thing I have is uh, the mention of Anarian, who is Isildur's brother. Mm. Um, he is um, not present for essentially the family gathering here because we meet the sister um, mm. and the father, uh, mm. but no other brother. Mm-hmm. Um, is Anarian up to something or what could he possibly be doing that he's not here? Because it seems to be a sore spot for Elendil, the father um, he does not seem to approve of whatever Anarian might be up to at this moment. No idea. Uh, he's probably off been Mad Shagger, coolest guy ever, too cool to be filmed, uh, which is why they're not showing him. Uh, Anarian is even more boring than Isildur uh, in terms of actual facts that we're given about him, but I have this weird uh, like uh, kind of love of him. I'm always cheering for him because his kingdom is Gondor, uh, and his line is the line of kings that lasts the longest and is also the line that's smartest enough, smart enough to appoint the stewards. So I'm always like, yeah, an Aryan, that's my guy. Uh, canonically, we know shit all about him. So he could really be anywhere. He's like over in Malaga, Magaluf, like he's in Ibiza. Fuck knows. He's having fun. I hope he's a party boy. And when he gets cast in season two, I hope it's a fun, charismatic guy. <laughs> yeah, um, I figured if he was showing up in the first season, his casting would have been announced by now. Um, but it does. It is one of those roles. I can see them trying to put put some name behind. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, the other thing is uh, we see Elendil presented with a sword in this episode. Um, Elendil famously wielded Narsil in the like final battle of the Last Alliance. It's the one that broke and then Isildur picked up and cut the ring from Sauron's hand. Um, I couldn't quite get a read on if this show wants me to think this is that sword or not, um, which is kind of weird. It's kind of ob- like the show has not been subtle where it wants me to think certain things, especially in relation to Peter Jackson's trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um does Elendil like own other swords? Is he like one of those guys who has like a bunch of guns back home? Um, <laughs> or is he just like known as this guy with this one sword kind of thing? No. So, so none of these swords, these name swords are like the soul swords of people that they own. Um, these name swords tend to get names like they will be named after they've been significant in a lot of ways. Um, so like they kind of get named for having been involved in a deed, like an important deed that was done. So like this could be the sword. It could also not be, uh, I'll, these guys are fighters. Uh, so they're like, like, it, look, it's kind of accurate to say they do probably, they are probably like gun guys. They probably do have a whole rack of guns at home, but like, they are also like soldiers. So like there is kind of a reason for it. Um, any one of these things could be it. Um, I think you're right, though. They've kind of, if they were trying to flag this, uh, they flagged it weirdly. Um, maybe, basically the answer is Elendil no doubt went through hundreds of swords in his life. Could be it. Could be it. It seems like the kind of, not cheap, but like it seems like the kind of, don't forget, Andrael is coming a thousand, three thousand years from now thing that this show would do. So, yes. Um, I am going to predict that this sword is going to have sex with the evil sword we see, and they're going to give birth to Narsil. Um, so that is going to be my official prediction. 
Um, we already saw it uh, suck up blood. I wonder. Oh, never mind. No. Um, <laughs> so uh, I guess we can uh, end this uh, episode with uh, our secret Sauron watch. Um, I'll go over the obvious one before handing it off to Emily, and that would be just continuing watching Halbrand, um, being someone of importance from the South, um, and then his ancestors pledging to Morgoth, and then also his interest in smithing that we see here that he talks about a little bit as well. Um, Some of these feel like too obvious, like red herring level obvious to me, especially his ancestor being pledged to Morgoth. I think that's a little too heavy. Um, even for this show, I think that's a little too heavy. Um, but I think that there's enough smoke there where he cannot be dismissed from the conversation. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, we will hold him without warrant in Gitmo until further notice. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, like the stranger? Uh, let's let's start there. Yeah, um, I am convinced now. So they played up the the stranger. They played up the Gandalf like elements uh, in the stranger with the stranger quite a lot. In this episode, I think like like there were moments where I was like, oh, yeah, this could legitimately be a Gandalf origin story, which is why I'm now convinced that he's Sauron. <laughs> like, I know I know that that's what they were kind of going for in the first two episodes. Uh, and it would be too easy now in this third episode where they're trying to set him up as Gandalf uh, to let him be Gandalf. So now I'm like, they're going to make him Sauron. And it's going to be one of these things where they've spent two episodes being like he's shady. And then they're going to spend the next six being like he's Gandalf and then episode seven or whatever or eight is gonna be like he's actually sauron uh and uh we're all gonna have to live with that decision but yeah i think that's probably where he's going now yeah i think the whole part of his like first words kind of being friend Mm -hmm. um i think that's gonna be more relevant to sauron became a friend to the men of numenor kind of thing Mm -hmm. um i think that's how they're gonna play that i i don't know but um i think it's very purposefully uh they know what they're doing and this is do i want to get into this now no i do not i will, <laughs> I will save this for a, a different discussion and episode because i think it apl- applies to prequels broadly and i'll at least give this prequel a chance to unravel itself before i damn it in the way i was about to damn it so yeah um Anything else you want to say about this episode from a spoiler context or something you might anticipate the show is going to show us anytime soon? Um, Adar. They end with Adar, him walking up and soft focus, and we don't get to see his face because they cut to black. This is not Sauron. Uh, this man is not going to be Sauron. Uh, they will not give up that one easily, I think. I'm fully subscribed to Uttermost Westworld. Uh, now I'm in ride-or-die mode for it. Um, I think there's a chance, there's a fat chance, this is going to be what I was worried about uh, before the show started airing, which is it could be like Meglin uh, in our uh, Discord. Someone horrifyingly brought up that it could be Ale, the Dark Elf, who, who is Meglin's father. That's also terrifying. Uh, that would also make sense, given the Sindarin name Adar, uh, and that ale is a, is a Sindar elf. Uh, spoke Sindarin actually banned Quenya uh, from from Middle Earth. And now that I'm saying all of these facts, I'm convincing myself that this is true. So I'm going to stop talking about it because I hate that possibility. Uh, but yeah, I don't think he's Sauron. I think he's going to be like a sexy elf that we're going to be all like, ooh, dark elves, they're possible, but they don't have to be bad. Interesting. Um, or wild card, he might be like Orifer, who is uh, Thranville's father, who was kicking it uh, and has no like canonical basis for being kind of a weird fella but they did kind of go quite dark with Thranduil and the Hobbit so there is like precedent for taking otherwise quite nice dudes and making them kind of edgy so it could be that okay um 
in the kind of like soft focus shot we got of him, um, it hasn't ruled out the chance that this could be Uncle Benjen, Uncle Benjen Stark, uh, <laughs> Joseph Maui, who I'm still waiting to show up in the show. Oh, for real? Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I think I saw um, his name on some casting sheet or a Google search being like Oren, which is not like O-R-E-N, which does not sound dissimilar from the name you just mentioned, who's related to Thandriel. Um, so maybe they're doing some bullshit there, but um, no other thoughts. But I think I don't think this is Sauron, which is the big takeaway, I think. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with you there. Um, I, I think one of the other things that I'm um, equal parts interested and worried about uh, is um, is like Kella Brimber as a character. Uh, so we haven't seen him for a while, um, I think, but was kind of roundly rebutted uh, to, by everyone who I said this to, that they're already kind of trying to play shady Kella Brimber up. Um, and I'm worried they're going to do some shit where, like, Sauron's already embedded with Celebrimber and, like, we're going to be all kind of out, like, us as the audience are going to be out on this, like, wild goose chase along with Gal- Galadriel. Uh, and actually, it's going to be one of the, like, CPA <laughs> elves. Um, so, who knows? I just don't think that, like, I, I know I'm planting my flag in, like, the, the stranger slash Gandalf is going to be Sauron, uh, but that's mostly irony at this point. Like, I do actually think it's going to be someone quite boring and quotidian, uh, or I hope it would be, because I think that would be a far more interesting story. But we'll see. Okay, you heard it here first. Emily thinks Kella Brimbor is our secret sorrow. <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod where you'll get access to special bonus content and early access to our episodes. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me also covering The House of the Dragon and A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF and Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be pushing the weak links to the very back of the cabin so the eldritch horror that follows along the Harfeet will eat them and I will finally be the chief hobbit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to- toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical, on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember. I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.